I mean it. I, I have this fear of enclosed spaces. I think everything must go back to the fact that I had a very anxious childhood. I, I, I feel physically inadequate. I gave it a lot of thought. The truth is, this therapy is a jerk-off. You know it, and I know it. Well, uh, I, I guess I, deep down I'm, I'm feeling a little confused. But the thing is, I mean, since our discussion's here, I feel I have a right to my own feelings. The simplest way to put it, I have problems. I worry about diseases, so uh, I have trouble touching things. I'm prone to depression. Certain bleak attitude about the world. But I know I can handle it. You're listening to Mental Wealth a podcast about people's mental health experiences and the tools of recovery. everyone and welcome to Mental Wealth with me Simon Tierney. This is a new series of podcasts for News Talk in which we'll be discussing a different mental health condition in each monthly episode for the next six months. The show is not intended to be a substitute for professional treatment but rather an exploration of mental health issues and how they affect our lives. In this episode we're looking at depression and to kick things off my guest today is comedian, poet and writer John Moynes. John how are you? Not too bad at the moment, actually, uh, which is makes a nice change. Good, yeah. How was your weekend? It, it, my weekend, it's it was just a weekend. <laughs> as I think about it, it was quiet, uh, which was which was good. Um, hopefully, I'm going to London this weekend, um, but for work? Uh, no, I'm going to a wedding. If the passport office hurry up and get me back my passport, so um, I'm having an exciting week of waiting. Now, did you lose your passport, or lose, have you never had? A passport? I did lose my passport. Yes, I've. Uh, I've I've had several passports over the years, a man of my age. Yeah. Now, from what John has just said, listeners might think I've got a very old gentleman <laughs> in front of me. But uh, he's, in fact, a sprightly young man in the prime of his life. With grey hair and a long beard. <laughs> uh, yeah, A magnificent beard. Yeah, it's a strange one I found. Um, the odd thing about growing a long beard is that nobody mentions the weather to you anymore. You, yeah. you know those people you bump into and they have nothing to say? Yeah. So yeah. they say, oh, it's a lovely day. Or they yeah. say, it's raining. Or something uh, fascinating like that. I've found over the last couple of years what they say to me is, you have a long beard. Uh, the, the <laughs> As an tr- opener. Yes, this is this is what they say. Um, so the trick is to look surprised and go, really? Oh, whoa, where did that come from? Yeah. Uh, the other thing is sometimes men ask me for advice on growing a beard. Really? Well, yeah. they are very fashionable. Now. Yeah, but th- I mean, the only advice you can give is don't shave. <laughs> After that, it sort of takes care of itself. Um, great stuff. So thanks so much for coming in, John. Oh, you're welcome. Um, it's great to have you for the first episode of mm. Mental Wealth. Just to start things off, we might get a little bit of <clears throat> context. When did you begin to suffer with depression? It's sort of hard uh, to tell. Um, it was probably some point in my teens. But with the way, with the way adolescence is... Uh, and, you know, teenagers are often introverted and withdrawn and grumpy and all that kind of thing. So it, it's kind of hard to, to pinpoint it. There certainly wasn't a traumatic event or anything in my life that caused this. It's probably just caused by a wrong set of chemicals in the brain. Uh, but by the time I was 21, I was certainly in a very bad state um, and completely unaware that I was sick. I mean, I just genuinely believed that I was crap. And I believed the world was a terrible place and I believed nobody liked me. And 
because this was back in the 1990s, because people didn't talk as openly then as they do about mental health problems, I genuinely wasn't aware that I was sick. Um, I knew people who had uh, conditions, say, like schizophrenia. And I thought that's what a mental health problem was. So I didn't associate what was going on with me with a problem that could get treated um, because we saw people with mental health problems as other. And literally because I wasn't hearing voices, I thought that I wasn't... I didn't have a problem. And to put it in context of precisely how stupid I was about that, uh, uh, in about, it was 1998, I was the welfare officer in UCD Students' Union and we decided to do uh, an awareness campaign about depression. So we were sent a list of symptoms by AWARE uh, and it was, if you have, there's eight symptoms and I think we said if you have more than three or four of these, go and speak to a GP. So I was typing these symptoms up onto a poster I was designing and literally every single symptom on the list, as I was typing it, I thought, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I get that. Yep, that, yep, yeah. Wow. And I reached the end of the list and typed in the bit about three or more symptoms, go see a GP. And I went and saw the printer and I had 600 of these printed, stuck them up around Belfield and didn't give it another thought. Um, so I never uh, uh, attempted to get any treatment at all until uh, after I'd had a failed suicide attempt um, and even at that stage it was quite a surprise to me that there was a, that I was suffering from a problem um, but also actually a great relief to be diagnosed in that way because um, even though I was still depressed I still had to go through treatment for the first time in years I was capable of feeling hope um, because I thought actually there, there is an alternative to all this I, I could be better and I'd, I'd love to find out what better feels like when the suicide attempt happened, you didn't have a diagnosis at no, that time? No, So it was after that event that yeah. you sought help? Yeah, well, um, it was... You kind of have to... You get, you get sent for help at that stage rather than uh, seeking it. Um, but it was, it was amazing. I went... When I, when I was first getting help, uh, I went to a cognitive behavioural therapist. And at that stage of my life, I was terrified of taking medication. And again, because of the experience of people I knew with uh, conditions like schizophrenia, the drugs that they were on had very obvious, very unpleasant side effects. And so I, I just assumed that all psychiatric drugs did. So I, I was too scared at that stage to, to deal with them. Um, but it was remarkable how quick the turnaround was in my life when, when I started the cognitive behavioural therapy. It was about six months uh, to utterly change the entire universe I was living in. Um, it's quite a very pleasant surprise, really. Well, that's great to hear. And um, we'll uh, discuss that further mm. uh, in a short while. But first of all, I want to read you a little passage um, that I found last night from Mrs. Dalloway mm -hmm. by Virginia Woolf. It's a short uh, little paragraph. And then um, I just want to ask uh, how you feel about this. Wolf writes, she had a perpetual sense as she watched the taxi cabs of being out, out, far out to sea and alone. Um, I suppose what struck me about that line was that there's this sense that there's a very busy world going mm -hmm. on around the protagonist, mm -hmm. but she is not engaged with that in some way. Yeah. And what what I'm interested in knowing is... What when you're deep in an episode of depression? Mm. What does that feel like for you? I've to to me that kind of manifests itself in this in a way that the more depressed I get, the less capable I am of understanding 
what's going on around me. Um, and quite specifically in the sense that as, as I get depressed anyway, um, my self-esteem drops at, at a very fast rate. And the strange effect of that is I become paranoid because when I start to see myself as being worthless, but then other people are treating me as they always treated me, uh, as somebody with some amount of worth at any rate. So I begin to think they must be up to something because why would they want this worthless person? You know, and, th- and it's that. And then you start to pull back because if you can't trust anyone and you don't like yourself and you almost don't want to waste their time with your presence. And yeah, so you you draw back that way. Put on your headphones there, mm-hmm. John, and have a listen to this. Since the beginning of time, people have been, you know, frightened and, and unhappy and they're scared of death and they're, they're scared of getting old. And there's always been priests around and shamans and now shrinks to tell them, look, I know you're frightened, but I can help you. <clears throat> of course, it is going to cost you a few bucks. That's a short scene from um, Anything Else, 2003 Woody Allen mm-hmm. movie. But I particularly like that scene. Um, and what I want to use that clip, I suppose, to move on to, John, is the whole area of therapy mm-hmm. within mental health. And um, you mentioned that it was after your suicide attempt mm-hmm. that you first saw a therapist. Do you see a therapist on an ongoing basis at this point in your life? No. Um, I tend to I see them when I'm sick and I'll go to treatment for a while until I get better and then stay in for a while after that I I don't want to go to a, a therapist full time partly because it's time consuming and it's expensive and it, it, it's not always an option and I'm not convinced that it's good for you to go to a therapist when you're feeling well because it can kind of associate you with being a sick person, or this is at least my experience, other people's mileage will vary. If I'm seeing a therapist every week, I tend to see myself as a sick person and I tend to be thinking more about my mental health problems. And that's not always good. That can that can keep them present. Um, also, with with the type of therapy that I found that worked best for me over the years was cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah, you mentioned yeah. that earlier in the show. Can, um, can you just explain a little bit for listeners who aren't aware of what that is? What, what exactly? Well, it's, it's, if you've never been in therapy and you might have this image of lying on a couch and telling someone about your childhood memories of your mother, that would more or less be the opposite of cognitive behavioural therapy. It tends not to be focused on the causes of your illness, but ways to practical ways to get yourself better. Uh, and to break out of the bad thought patterns um, and and how to do things that will improve yourself. And that, to me, I like. Um, I have tried other forms of therapy over the years and a lot of it is... Uh, I, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. I had one therapist who was continually talking about how there may have been events that happened when I was a toddler that I can no longer remember. That's a kind of a Freudian approach. Well, yeah, and I, but I also... It seemed to me was, well... If nobody can remember that these happened and we can't prove, then why are we talking about, you know, what's the use? Now, as I, as I say, these other forms of therapy have worked very well for other people, I know. And also, I, sh- I should probably say to, you, to your listeners that as well as having, as well as there being lots of different types of therapy, uh, it's worth bearing in mind that individual therapists vary an awful lot. So you might go to one therapist, they might have a style of therapy that works for you, but you just mightn't get on with them. You mightn't click with them for all kinds of reasons. Um, and I know so many people who began to suspect there might be something wrong with them, went to see one therapist, 
didn't get on with that therapist or didn't like the style of therapy and then never tried therapy again uh, and thus remained sick for a long time afterwards. That's a real shame. It is. Um, again, it goes back to the idea of people not talking about their mental health to each other, people not being aware of, of what a mental health problem is or how to uh, go about getting better. Um but I, I mean, I do know there's there's one woman I know who went who left it 15 years between her first visit to a therapist and the time she went back, and they were 15 horrible years, and frankly, 15 wasted years. Wow! Yeah, absolutely. Though I was given a talk once in a college on this, and I, because cognitive behavioural therapy is such a a long phrase, I was referring to it as CBT, and uh, I noticed some of the students kept giggling. So. Uh, afterwards I went and put it into Google and uh, it turns out it also can mean cock and ball torture which is uh, you know some sort of SNL yes yeah and um, you know it's I I certainly don't think that would necessarily be a good treatment uh, for unipolar depression you know but then again if it works for you it works for you yeah I wonder is there a CBT therapist of that description as well I'd I'd say there probably (laughs) is you know maybe within the pages there's a limit to how far into Google Google, I was going to follow that particular trail. Yeah. Do you think you'll have this condition for the rest of your life? I'm beginning to suspect that I will always be at risk of it. You know, when, after the first time I uh, went through treatment, I was fine for eight or nine years. Ever since then, every few years, uh, I get a bit wobbly. But because I'm getting better at, uh, at, at recognising it coming on, I can start getting into treatment when I'm on my way down rather than at the bottom of it, which means uh, you you tend to get out of it a lot quicker. And also you avoid uh, having to to reach that horrible point and also the dangerous point because uh, the type of depression I have is often linked with uh, suicidal ideation. So you don't really want to get into the area where you're beginning to get tempted again. You want to get the treatment before before that becomes a, a threat. In terms of when you're having a bad episode, mm. how does that affect your day-to-day life, your work, your socialising, your eating, all those sort of things? Mm. There tends to be less of most of those things. Uh, I'm, I've, I've got quite good over the years at keeping it away from uh, my work. Um, and as a freelancer, you know, I'm not, I'm not, if I stop working, um, then uh, then I'm in trouble. Uh, so... So I, I, I've, I've kind of taught myself to work through uh, the problem areas, but I, I, everything else tends to, to go to pieces. The diet, I just eat fewer meals. Um, I tend to eat things that are easy to cook because I couldn't be arsed. So I, I'm, I'm buying frozen foods and things like that. I do my laundry less often. Uh, I avoid a lot of social situations. And when I'm at social situations, I'm prone to leave uh, at the drop of a hat and frequently without telling anyone. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't... Um, it doesn't help, but uh, but on top of that, the other things is are to focus on things like imp- get my diet better, start exercising more. Um, exercise does not cure depression, but if you're exercising regularly, it will lessen the effect of whatever depression you're feeling. Um, and then force myself to do things like tidy the damned house, wash my clothes, you know. I, I don't find forcing myself into social situations helps at all. That just tends to make me more anxious. But some of the symptoms I can start fixing, and I think that has a knock-on effect on the condition. It's hard to say for definite, but at least I get a good meal out of it. Okay, it's time for this. This is what I believe to be true. This is what I learned in the hospital. 
You have to do everything you can. You have to work your hardest. And if you do, if you stay positive, you have a shot at a silver lining. In this part of the podcast, we look at movies, books, music and other interests which can cast a light on the difficulties of mental health issues or indeed uh, sometimes offer some respite during difficult times. First of all, John, I want you to have a listen to this. I think it'll be familiar mm-hmm. to you. That's the theme tune from the film Kelly's Heroes. Um, John, what what is it about that film that's interesting for you? Well, that's that's a film I'd say I've watched possibly three dozen, three four dozen times. It's going to sound like a very strange thing to say for, say about it, but to me, at any rate, it's a it's a stress free film. Now, this sounds odd because if if any any of the listeners aren't aware of the plot, I'll just br- briefly outline it. It's. Uh, Clint Eastwood and Telly Savalas and they're American soldiers in the Second World War. It's the invasion of Europe. And they realise that there's a bank behind German lines with a huge amount of gold in it. So they leave the army or with a bunch of their soldiers that, uh, and they get some tanks together and they go to pull off a bank heist uh, in the middle of the Second World War. So it's a bank heist and a war film, which... You know, they're both kind of stressful situations, yeah. <laughs> really. But, you know, there's something quite gentle about it. Apart from the scene in the uh, the, the minefield, uh, which is the only bit that really ratchets up the tension. But I think also just I've seen it so many times, I know exactly what's going to happen almost second yeah, by second yeah. as I'm going. But I find when I'm down, life is so tense for me and I'm so anxious all the time. I find watching a film or a TV show, if there's a lot of tense scenes in it, that just, that just freaks me out and I want to get away and I... I I don't find that enjoyable. And, of course, most drama is driven by tension. So, you know, if I tried to watch something like Game of Thrones or The Wire or Breaking Bad uh, when I'm down, I'm, I'm going to get about five minutes into it and I'm, I'm just turning the damn telly off. Um, so I, I tend to go back to either books I've already read or films I've already th- things I know all the way through and generally things that are based on a sense of fun. And this is an incredibly joyful and funny film. So, uh, do you know it's it's very interesting what you're saying about watching it with the knowledge of exactly what's mm. going to happen in the film. Yeah, it's comforting. Absolutely. Uh, I have a a, a similar um, thing that that I always go back to if I'm mm. feeling down, and that's a particular episode of Only Fools and Horses right. called Friday the Fourteenth. Yeah. And the plot, again, sounds like it's uh, really tense and could be potentially upsetting. It's about Rodney, Grandad and um, Del Boy going down to Boise's cottage in the countryside (laughs) in order to do some illegal salmon fishing. Um, But once they get down there, the local uh, police tell them that there's an axe murderer on the loose. Ah. Now... That sounds like a kind of a, a setup which could be. <laughs> you could go in a number of directions yeah. from there, yeah. But I first watched it probably when I was about eight or nine. Yeah. And I'd say I've watched that episode hundreds yeah. of times. 
Um, I often watch it on my mobile phone on, oh, really? on YouTube yeah, yeah. Or in bed if I'm feeling down. I know every word to the episode. <laughs> but what's important about it and what you're saying about Kelly's Heroes is that there's a kind of there's a predictability mm-hmm. to the experience yeah. of watching it. I know exactly what's going to happen next. And that kind of it delivers a kind of um a warmth or or a, a, a kind of a, a relief or something it's like you're entering into a world mm. in which you know everything about yeah. this world um and i think it also helps that you know there's going to be a happy ending yeah yeah um which you know as, as you know with depression there's that horrible feeling of hopelessness um and also when i certainly find when i get very depressed that there's there's always a chance that there might be a very sad ending very, very soon, you know. Yep. So at least, you know, if you can get yourself an hour and a half or, or whatever away from all that, I think uh, I think a bit of comfort watching. Yeah, it's very pleasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spike Milligan's book, William McGonagall, The Truth at Last. Yeah, Tell actually, me about this book. We should, we should say um, that it was co-written with Spike Milligan and Jack Hobbs. Oh, yes. Yeah. Both great comedy writers uh, and both, uh, well, they were actually bipolar, both of them. Uh, so they wrote the first of these books, the William McGonagall series, when at a time when they were both uh, at the depressive end of the bipolar spectrum. And it's based on... McGonagall was a 19th century Scottish poet. He was awful. But he became famous because he was so, so bad. And he kept pushing, kept pushing. He wanted to be Poet Laureate. If you look up the bridge over the Silvery Tay, I'd advise any readers to Google that. It's, you will laugh out loud at how bad this is. Um, so anyway, they, the pair of them decided to write a book uh, about McGonagall. It's based very loosely on his life, but the way the way the book works is every second sentence is a one-line gag, and the sentences in between the gags are just there to set up the just move the plot along enough to put in another gag and another gag and another gag. Brilliant! It's and, sort of a, a pastiche biography. Is yes, the structure yeah. Of it. Well, it it starts that way, but but it, those gags are incredibly funny, and they did. I think it was either three or four of the books over the years. Anytime they both were sick at the same time, they'd come in uh, and write gags until they laughed themselves out of it, I think was the, the aim. But of course, um, it, I don't think it actually worked. I think they were still going to <laughs> into yeah. psychiatric hospitals and so forth. But uh, When I was doing some research mm. on, on that, when you mentioned to, to me about the McGonagall book, mm. um, I noticed that there was only one poem during uh, McGonagall's life that he was ever paid to write. Yeah. And it was for an advertisement for sunlight soap. Yeah. And it goes like this. You can use it with great pleasure and ease without wasting any elbow grease. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of his better rhymes yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one thing I was going to mention, John, is mm. about relationships uh, yeah. and that in relation to um, mental health, depression particularly. Um, I was thinking about one of my favourite films, which is The Hours. Yeah. With um, Nicole Kidman mm-hmm. plays uh, Virginia Woolf. It's kind of, I suppose, uh, very much um, influenced by Mrs. Dalloway, which I mm-hmm. mentioned earlier on in the episode. It's also each of the three female characters are feeling alienated yeah. in some way. And there's a particular scene in it between Virginia Woolf and her husband, which I found interesting. And I just want to get your thoughts on it. Have a listen to this. No such obligation. Exist. Virginia, you have an obligation to your own sanity. I've endured this custody. Endured this imprisonment. Oh, Virginia. I am a dentist. 
attended by doctors everywhere. I am attended by doctors who inform me of my own interests. They know your interests. They do not. They do not speak for my interests. Virginia, I, I can see that it must be hard for a, a woman of your... Of what? Uh, of my your, what, exactly? Your talents to see that she may not be the best judge of her own condition. So that's, as I say, a scene between Virginia Woolf and her husband. What I'm interested in in that scene is that in that point in the film, Virginia Woolf is very down. Mm -hmm. There's a frustration on both sides, her husband and herself, uh, in the way that they're communicating with with each other. With your experience of depression, John, um, how have you found your relationships have been hindered, enhanced, affected? I think you're always going to have your relationships hindered to some extent by this. Um, No matter how understanding someone is uh, and how well prepared they are, if you've warned them in advance, you start going at someone, by the way, this might happen in the next while. Um, The reality is, if you have the kind of depression I have, you can become withdrawn, you can become introverted, uh, you can become quite selfish. And those aren't good things to do to keep a relationship working. Um, I was once a few years ago seeing a girl and we were both going through a depressive patch at the same time and that really didn't work um, and then it's kind of un- you know sometimes people I, th- I think people could understandably go well w- why do I have to hang around and be the person who supports them through this when they're not in a position to give anything back um, but you know I've, I've I've certainly had relationships that survived periods like that um, Can it be helpful? I've certainly not found a way uh, that it was. Though, though admittedly, I, I mean, again, it's easier now than it was years ago because people are more aware of things. I mean, I had a few years back, um, I was just out of a long relationship and it was the first date I was going on in several years and I, I met this girl in a cafe. I never, never met her before. It was a computer dating thing. I go in and at the time I was doing a show with, with a few other performers about mental health and so I met her in the cafe, I went to sit down, she pointed across the road out the window and there was this big full colour poster, my face and a few other people no talking way. about their own mental health problems. And I haven't I haven't sat down yet. Um, but she still had sex with me. Now, I, a lot of people might say that was a, a pity shag and, and I don't care. Maybe she didn't see the sign. Or no, maybe, no, she, maybe did. she did. What the hell's that about? Maybe she was yeah. impressed yeah. by your advocacy. Yeah, or um, maybe she just liked the poster. <laughs> <laughs> maybe she just liked your beard. I, well, I, I don't think I had a beard. No, I didn't. Um, I was clean shaved. <laughs> um, finally, uh, before we finish up this month's episode, uh, John... Mental Wealth recommends, um, in this part of the podcast, we look at things which may help people who are dealing with a particular mental health disorder, mm. uh, books, charitable organisations, support groups, etc. And we're obviously focusing on depression this week. Are there any organisations, John, or indeed books or anything like that, that you would recommend for people who are struggling with depression? Aware are fantastic. Uh, they have uh, branches all over the country, phone lines. You can deal with a very, very good website. Um, do they have support groups? Yes, they do. I certainly uh, have found them very helpful at times, and a lot of people I know have been through. And they they also often get people who've been through a depression to start running support groups as well and to give talks to other people, and it's a very, very worthwhile service. Uh, if your problems are likely... If you're feeling suicidal, specifically, I would go to Pieta House, uh, another very, very fine organisation. Um, but I think it's important to... Uh, create your own uh, support groups 
and especially if you've got a condition like mine that'll go up and down, a good thing to do is when you're not down, make sure your family, your friends, your colleagues, this kind of thing, understand uh, the nature of your problem. And I found like the last time I felt myself getting sick, I told everyone close to me. And I said, look, I'm going down. At this stage, they all know me. They all know what, I'm, what, it, what it is I go through. But by warning them, I'm going to be withdrawn for a while. I'm not, I'm not going to be a barrel of laughs for the next few months. Uh, they were all very good in terms of... They didn't actually have to do anything. Uh, they just went, fine, right, we know. If there's anything we can do, tell us. There's, there's never anything to do. But because I knew they knew, it takes the pressure off me. And then I don't feel that I have to be going out. And if, and if I get invited to something and I don't want to go, I just say, I don't want to go. And they'll say, fine. And, they, and, you know, and then none of them will be putting pressure on me to do things I don't want to do. And that kind of support group is invaluable. That's really interesting, uh, I, especially because I know from my own experience, sometimes you can, there's a, an almost a, a, a latent guilt that mm. you're not being in good form, yeah, in, yeah. in inverted commas, or you're not feeling as sociable as you might do. But if you can let people in your life know in advance, that really, I would imagine, takes a little bit of pressure off. So that's www.aware.ie. Uh, they also have, um, I notice, uh, an email service if you don't feel like uh, attending a group or uh, calling them, uh, which is supportmail at aware.ie. Sea Change, hmm. who are the, the, they're a charity that they produce Box of Frogs, they produce Mad Crack, um, but they work specifically on dealing with the stigma uh, that's associated with mental health problems. And of course, the stigma is often as much of a problem uh, as the illness itself. So if you're someone who's been through this and you think you'd like to get involved in helping see change, they're always looking for what they call ambassadors, which would be people who'd be prepared to maybe get interviewed by a local newspaper or attend an information event. And it's just people who can spread the word about what they've been through. Yeah, uh, follow them on Twitter. They're very good mm -hmm. on Twitter. Finally, I would also recommend um, a book, Overcoming Depression, a self-help guide using cognitive behavioral techniques. That's the CBT that John was speaking about. That's one of the CBTs the I was talking about. Yeah, one on. of them. Yes. <laughs> the cleaner one. Mm, indeed, yeah. <laughs> That's by Paul Gilbert. John, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in to speak uh, with us on Mental Wealth. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to comment on this episode of Mental Wealth or if you would like to share your experience of mental ill health or indeed recovery, you can email me simon.tierney at newstalk.com or you can contact us on Twitter and the Newstalk Twitter handle is at newstalkfm. I'd love to hear from you. So um, please make sure you listen to next month's Mental Wealth podcast when we'll be discussing anorexia and the tools of recovery. Thanks for listening.